Good morning. Several years ago, my wife Bethany and I uh, filled in at a friend of mine's church in London for the summer. Uh, we brought our two kids, our two oldest, Bauer and, and Izzy, and uh, Bethany was pregnant with our third. And we lived in a flat in the west end of London in Shepherd's Bush. And it was great. We, we brought over some missions teams while we were there, kind of continuing the, what my friend was doing uh, in, in that area. And because we were there for a long time, we decided we want to take a date. We want to have a date night one night. Uh, we got one of the interns at the church to watch our kids so we could go out. I think this was probably the only time, or at least the first time, we'd been able to, to get out together in, in a month or so. And so we went to the pub, the local pub, for dinner. London is very expensive, and so this is a big deal. And uh, we sit down to order, we pull up the menu, and I like weird stuff. I just like different. I like different. And so I see uh, a gammon steak on the menu, gammon steak with an egg. And I'm like, okay, all right. Like, I can do this, right? I got this. I've been ordering food off menus for, you know, a long time. Steak and an egg, you can't go wrong with that. Really, they had me an egg. It didn't matter what it was on. It was like, ooh, that sounds fancy. There's an egg. So I order this thing, and it shows up, and what I did not realize but now know is that gammon is actually a dry, dry salt-cured pork. It's really salty. And I should have known because when, when you think of like, man, I love the finest cuisine and like the most delicious pork products in the world, you don't normally go, British food. So this steak comes, I mean, it was, it was so salty. It was, like a, it was like a salt cube with like slight pork flavoring to it. It was not good. And I'm too cheap to, to waste it. And so I'm like forcing it down. And my wife graciously was like, I'll share mine with you. It just, it was not good. I thought I knew what I was doing, right? It's like how hard, like I'm ordering food. Like I don't need to know what all this stuff is. I'm sure I'll be fine. Like how hard could it be? But because I ordered the wrong thing, I left the restaurant hungry and a little frustrated. I think that happens to us all the time. Maybe you're not ordering weird food in a British pub, but we think we know the exact right thing to do. We often do, right? But the truth is we often don't. We're going to look this morning at that idea more as we continue our series, I am Jesus, with the next I am saying, I am the bread of life. If you got a Bible with you, you can open it up. We're going to turn to John chapter 6. We'll look at 22 to 59. It's a big chunk of scripture. John chapter 6. We'll give you some background. Uh, Jesus, in these verses, is talking in a synagogue in Capernaum. So he's talking to a Jewish audience in the city of Capernaum, which is in the northern Galilee region. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Jesus, earlier in chapter 6, had performed the miracle that's known as the feeding of the 5,000 which is where he took a small boy's lunch, five small barley loaves and two small fish, and, and prayed and miraculously allowed this food to feed. And it says 5,000, but that, that only counts the men. So there's probably 15, 20,000 people with this one little lunch. And so these people have seen this, right? They know that this just happened. A lot of these people were there, and everybody certainly would have heard about it. And so that's the setting that this takes place in. The idea of bread and hunger, I mean, those, those are very relevant to his audience because of what they've just gone through. And so they're having a discussion with Jesus. 
They've asked him some questions, and they're trying to, to understand. And Jesus says to them, don't be so concerned about the perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. And they're curious about that. They're like, what's that mean? You know, show us that. Help us to understand. You know, we, we know something about this bread. You know, God gave bread to our father Moses and the people in Israel. And we'll talk about that more later. But he's like, so, so tell us more about this. And that's where Jesus dives in. He calls himself the bread of life. And so we're gonna look at three attributes of the bread of life. What does that mean? Why, why does it matter to us that Jesus is the bread of life? All right, the first reason is the bread of life satisfies our needs. The first reason is the bread of life satisfies our needs. In verse 35, Jesus replies to these people. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty and then just to make it super clear, he says again in, in verse 48, yes, I am the bread of life. And look, I love the way he talks about it because whoever believes in me will never be hungry, will never be thirsty. Not thirsty a little bit later, hungry a little bit later, will never be hungry or thirsty again. Now, what are people thinking when they hear that? I mean, that sounds intriguing, right? Because even the most filling meal that you've had, you're still hungry afterwards. Right? The best Thanksgiving dinner you had, I mean, maybe it takes a day because you're, you're working off the, that food coma that you were in, but you're still hungry again at some points. Hey, you can't imagine somebody comes over to your house for dinner and they're like, oh, that was so good, that's it. Never eating again. Thank you so much. But he tells them you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. What's he talking about? Jesus is getting at the idea of, of our our needs and our own understanding of them. What he's saying is when we look to meet our needs the wrong way, it, it never quite satisfies, right? Because we think we can meet our own needs. If we're honest, we think we can meet our own needs. And that's really where sin comes from. The belief that we know what needs we have and we can meet them the way they need to be met. We misunderstand what those needs are and we often fill those needs the wrong way. And really what we're doing is confusing the words need and want. We'll say we need something. We don't really need it. We want it. And it's not necessarily bad to want something. But when we substitute those words, we begin to really misunderstand who God is. Because when we misunderstand what, when we say, like, I want another, I need another slice of pizza. I don't need another slice of pizza. I, I want another slice of pizza. That's not bad. You know, I don't need to eat Taco Bell. I just want to eat Taco Bell. And I probably shouldn't even want to eat it. <laughs> but when we substitute those words, what we begin to do is, is, conflate spiritual need with spiritual want, right? We, we go, well, I don't, I don't want that. And so it's not important because we substitute want for need. You ever wanted something really badly? Really badly. I mean, you really like pined for this thing. You ever wanted something really badly? I mean, the way you know that we misunderstand these words, the way that we know we we want the wrong thing is, think about, think about a time when you wanted something really badly, right? You, you were convinced like, oh man, I just, I want this, this new model car. It's just, oh my goodness, it's incredible. It's got a Hemi something, something, something. That's the only word I would know there. But, you know, you convince yourself this new thing will matter. Like, oh, you want, I, I, just, I need an Apple watch because when I get that, then my, I'll make my fitness goals. Like, it'll be perfect. Like, I need this thing. When you get that thing that you really felt like you needed, was your life perfectly satisfied? Did you ever need anything again, right? It's not like you get that thing that you want and you're like, that's it! 
All my needs have been met. I am fulfilled for the rest of my life. Neighbors, friends, I have discovered the secret to life. Nobody's doing that. At least none of my neighbors are. We want the wrong stuff. Sin is rooted in a wrong perception of God. It's us trying to take care of the needs we have in our own way and in our own time. It's us saying, I know how to get what I truly need. I know how to take care of that. I mean, let's look at just some, some simple examples. Think about stealing, right? What's stealing other than saying, there is something that I want and it is more important that I get it than I get it the right way. Doesn't matter how I acquire it, just that I acquire it. Think about lying. Well, I mean, what's, what's lying other than saying it matters the result of this situation? I mean, that's really what matters, right? It doesn't matter how I achieve that. Truth doesn't really matter. It matters is I get what I want out of this. I have a need, and if I have to, to shape and massage truth in order to get that need met, that's fine because what matters is the need. Or think about it in the context of a relationship, right? Think about when, when, when there's cheating or, or adultery in a relationship. What is that need other than saying I have emotional needs or physical needs that aren't being met, and what matters more is that those needs are met the way I want them met, We want the wrong things and we often fill it the wrong way. And the problem with that stuff is that sin doesn't ever truly satisfy. It never does. It always leaves us wanting more. God knows us and knows what we need far, far better than we do. Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician and he, he said this, I love this. He spoke right to this idea. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. What he's saying is there is a longing in our soul that we cannot meet on our own, that we cannot fill. No matter what we pile into that, no matter what we fill it with, we cannot fill that need, that longing on our own. That need can only be filled by God. It's a God-shaped void. He speaks right to the core of this. Because folks, our deepest needs aren't physical. They're not even emotional. Our deepest needs are spiritual. Our deepest needs aren't physical or emotional, they're spiritual. And that matters because you can survive being physically broken or emotionally broken if you're spiritually whole. In fact, I'd say that's the only way you can survive. When I think of people that I know and love and respect who have endured incredibly difficult circumstances, either physically or emotionally, the only way they're able to do that is by being spiritually whole, by having faith that God knows what's going on, having faith in something greater, faith that God is with them and aware of their hurts. You can survive being physically broken or emotionally broken if you're spiritually whole. You cannot survive the opposite. Because forever is a much, much longer time than the span of your life. And it's definitely a much longer time than what you're going through right now, though it may not feel like it. Our spiritual needs are at the core of who we are and they affect our forever. Jesus, as one writer puts it, 
claim to be the only permanent satisfaction for the human desire for life. We want our felt needs met immediately in the way that we want them met. But Jesus came to meet our actual needs, our spiritual needs, and he came to meet them forever. Jesus satisfies our needs. God is creative in the way that he fills that hole in our heart, that infinite abyss that Pascal mentioned. That can feel overwhelming and consuming, but God creatively fills that with Jesus. That need that we have, Jesus satisfies. The next thing we see is that the bread of life sustains our lives. Bread of life sustains our lives. Jesus says in verses 32 and 33, he says, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread is not a thing, it's a person. And he says in in verse 57, I live because of the living father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, when he talks about manna, that's referencing a story in the Old Testament. Right? The, the Israelites are in captivity in Egypt and they've been crying out to God and God hears them and so rescues them from the Egyptians. He sends Moses to lead them. It's what's called the Exodus. And when they're in the desert, they start to complain about not having any food. And so God provides them manna, which is literally food that comes from heaven, food that fell from the sky every day. God provided for them in that way. I mean, this, this, this incredible way Food literally came from the sky. That is where Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs stole their idea from. (laughs) Literally food came from the sky. And what's fascinating here is Jesus says, Moses didn't give you that bread, guys. God gave you that bread. God is the one who provided for you, who cared for you, who sustained you. And Jesus makes that connection to say, I live because of the living father who sent me. And so you live by living in me. I live being connected to God. You live being connected to me. If I'm honest, this is the hardest part for me. Really living like Jesus sustains me, like that's enough. I mean, I get that Jesus satisfies my big needs, right? My need for a savior, my need for forgiveness. I'm well aware that there is stuff in my heart that I desperately wish was different, that I can't dig out on my own, that I I can't make life work out the way I want to on my own. I'm just flawed. I know that's true about myself. And so I get that Jesus satisfies my deep need for a savior, where I struggle is seeing that he's enough for me every moment of every day. That he's enough for me in the small moments too. It can be easier, right, when it's a big thing, when we go, there's nothing I can do, this is beyond me, I, I need help. But what about in the small moments where it's like, but, but I can do that, I, I do have some influence, I, I could potentially handle this. Like th- those moments where it's like, well, God, I don't know if I need you here. That's what challenges me. We all trust things. Even those of us with trust issues, we all trust things. And sometimes those things may seem crazy to other people. For instance, this looks absolutely crazy to me. Absolutely not. You could tell me, well, Josh, the tensile strength of that wire could literally hold up the entire continent. I don't care. I mean, that's nuts. 
But zip lines, all right, that's more in my, like, my realm. And, and working with students for a long time, once or twice a year, I would inevitably find myself confronted with a zip line. And you know, if you've ever done a zip line, they string this wire between two places and they put you in that like 12-point harness that's secured tightly enough that you wonder, I may never have kids after this. Because <laughs> you're just like, is that good? You're like, oh, it's, it's tight, it's good. And, and I know intellectually that that wire will hold me, right? Like, I, I know that. I know intellectually that that wire and that harness will hold me up. But I have a hard time actually trusting. So when I get up on that platform, I have this grand plan every time that I'm just going to run off and launch myself. And then it's like you run and it's right about here where you're like, well, maybe I should just hold on to be safe. And the irony about that is, let's say the harness did break and the wire snapped. Me holding on is not going to do anything. I know it's true, but I have a hard time actually trusting it, living like I trust it. Trust can be hard for us, and it can be hard to trust God as well, because sometimes we'll say, God, just show me a sign and I'll trust you. The people in this story said the same thing to Jesus. Show us a sign. You know what Jesus said? Verses 26 and 27, he says to them, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. Son of Man is a name that Jesus called himself. You know what he's saying to him? I have shown you signs. You know when? Yesterday. As far back as yesterday. Remember that lunch you had that I made from five loaves and two fish? Pretty incredible, right? He's, what he's saying is it's not enough. No signs were going to be enough because the issue wasn't with what Jesus had done. The issue was with their hearts. They were concerned with the wrong needs. They were concerned with the wrong needs. And that changed the way they viewed everything. When our son was one, right around one, uh, right before one, my, uh, my wife found out she was pregnant with our second, and we were just so excited. We're thrilled. Little family is growing, and we were out with some friends one day at King of Prussia Mall, which is this huge mall back where we used to live. At one point, it was like first or second largest in the country in terms of retail space. It was huge. Very similar to Fair Oaks Mall. Very similar. <laughs> So we're out at lunch, and we're sitting with our friends, and Bethany gets up to go to the bathroom, and then she comes back and, and whispers to me she's, that she's had a lot of bleeding, and she's pretty scared. So we set up a doctor's appointment for the next day, and we go in and have an ultrasound, and the ultrasound tech's doing their thing, and then uh, we get dismissed to wait for the doctor's phone call, and so I send Bethany home to relieve the babysitter, and I sit there and wait for about an hour. And then the doctor calls, and the doctor talks to me, and I don't really know what's okay. And so I finally just ask, like, are we buying baby clothes or not? Like, what, what's going on? And the doctor says, I'll never forget, I, don't, uh, I do not believe this is a viable pregnancy. So I walk out, and I call Bethany, and then I call my dad, and I'm driving to my office, walking around in the backfield of our church, and I just start to unravel. I can't breathe I'm so overwhelmed, and I start to get angry. God, why would you do this? It took us years to get pregnant with our first son. Why would you do this? Why even let us get pregnant and just take it away? 
Well, I've had students that have gotten pregnant. You don't think we'd be good enough parents? Why would you do this? I couldn't talk about it without it overwhelming me. And I felt like God saying in that moment, are you gonna use this? Are you gonna allow this to change the way you view me? Are you gonna trust me less because of this? And I said, yes. Why would you even do this? It just feels mean. So the next day, I feel the same conversation bubbling up in my heart with God, God saying, am I less faithful because of this? And my answer is still yes. And the next day, same conversation, and my answer is the same. And the next day, and finally, by the seventh day, I feel God asking me again, and I, and I just say in my heart, no, you are still good. I don't know why you did this. And it hurts so much that you would do this. Just given our experience and how long this took and all of this stuff, why would you do this? But you are still good. I still trust you. God didn't need me to tell him that I trusted him. God knew I needed to tell him I trust him. God didn't become more good. God just helped me realize how good he already was and had been the whole time. God knew I needed to look to him as the one who sustains me. Not my plans, not what I want, not me being able to control this, but, but to him. And the next day we went to the doctor for a follow-up and they did an ultrasound and the baby was fine. And that's our daughter, Izzy. And I'm convinced that there was a miracle. I'm convinced, why would a doctor who wasn't absolutely certain say anything other than, you know what, we don't know, let's check next week. But I'm also convinced that God needed to get something out of me, needed to do something in my heart. I was concerned with the wrong needs. And so I had missed the signs. God had been so, so faithful to us and I lost sight of that. He had sustained us and I had trouble seeing that as enough. That's why God wants us to know him. That's why Adam talked last week about reading the Bible and understanding it. That's why Jesus talks about it here in verse 45 when he says, as it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. It matters that we understand who God is because when we, when we do, it draws us back to him. Spiritual maturity, when we grow in our relationship with him, that matters because the more we understand who God is, the quicker we're able to shift our eyes back to him and realize that he is, sent his son not just to satisfy our needs, but to sustain our lives. It's not a one and done thing. It is an ongoing everyday thing. The last thing that we see from the, the, about the bread of life is the bread of life secures our future. Jesus says in verse 40, for it is my father's will that all who see his son and believe in him shall, should have eternal life. It says in verse 47, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
right? That's the connection with, with this, this Moses story that they're saying, yes, God provided for them, but they died. What's, what's coming now is a different sort of bread from heaven, a different sort of food that will sustain you forever. In fact, in this chunk of scripture, he, he mentions eternal life 13 times. It's a big idea here. He's pointing us to God, his father through himself. And what does he mean by that? I think what, he, what he's trying to, to point out is we were made for something more. This life is not all that there is. We were made for something more. Our bodies will not be eternal, but our souls are. And what God wants us to know is eternal life with him in his presence, with the God who knows us, with the God who created us, who cares about us more than we can imagine, a place where we can experience this fulfillment and this deep meaning that we long to know. It's like Dave and Buster's times a Caribbean vacation times a bajillion. That's what God wants, eternity with, with perfect God in the perfect place. He wants us to experience that. He doesn't want us to know eternal separation from him, which is hell. He doesn't want us to experience that. He wants us to know life. I think we get that we were made for something more at a deeply personal level. C.S. Lewis says it like this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that longing we have that we can't fill with anything, with, with all of the stuff we try to, the, the longing that we can't fill, that sin only heightens and, and points out how, how we are unable to meet that need, that need is filled by Jesus. We were created to know life with him. The Jewish audience of these verses wanted to know what they had to do to get this eternal life. I mean, they figured that, that if they, they just needed to know the right combination of good things to do, and if they had that, they'd be fine. But Jesus instead points them to himself because eternal life, it's not a reward we earn, it's a gift we receive. It's not a reward we earn, it's a gift we receive. Jesus wants people to receive him for who he will be to them, their savior and their rescuer and not just for what he could do for them, and not just what he could do for you. He wants people to know him and experience him, to have a relationship with him, and through him, a relationship with God. That's this eternal life that we're called to. Really, it's our home. He's calling us home. Folks, our deepest needs aren't physical. They're not even emotional, they're spiritual. They're spiritual, and Jesus has come to meet those spiritual needs. So how do we experience that? Well, Jesus gives us a glimpse in, in verses 55 to 57. He says, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. Now let's just address up front, Jesus doesn't mean literally eat his body and drink his blood because that's gross. You know, it doesn't mean that literally because, you know, that's cannibalism and that's generally frowned upon. Instead, what he's pointing to is that we use food as fuel. We use food to give us energy. We use food to keep us going, right? And he's saying, instead of looking to this perishable food, instead of looking to this food that will leave you hungry, how do you look for spiritual food? 
that will satisfy your needs perfectly, right? Temporary food, physical food meets our physical hunger, but even that only for a time. Jesus is pointing us to spiritual food that meets our spiritual needs forever. That's what he wants us to experience. That forces us to ask this question. What am I really filling my life with? What am I really filling my life with? I want to challenge you this week. Take take a moment. Maybe it's this afternoon. Maybe you get up early one day this week. I don't know why you'd get up early, but maybe you do. You like that? Take stock of your life. You need to report back to me. I want to challenge you to do this for you. What things are you pursuing? What does your life show that you value? What has your time and your money and your focus? What has your heart? Is it success? Is it advancement at work? Is it recognition? Is it stuff? Is it a bigger house or a better car or a bigger collection? The newer thing? Is it a relationship? Do you define yourself by your boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or lack of one? What are those things that you're focusing on? What What are you filling your life with? Jesus says he's the bread of life. Are you eating that bread? Because uneaten bread does you no good. And similarly, an unreceived savior does you no good. What can you trust Jesus with this week? What are you carrying that you can invite him into? What can you surrender? Where can you ask him for help? What can you spend time praying about? When you don't know God, you don't know the truth about him and just how much he truly loves you. That's what Jesus wants for you. A deep and rich and meaningful satisfaction that comes from filling your life with him. I wanna challenge you this week to ask yourself the same question I'll be asking. What are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? We have the opportunity this morning to take part in communion. Communion is when followers of Jesus come together and participate in the death and the resurrection of God's son. It's when we remember the cross that Jesus was crucified on, where he gave up his life for us, where he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died on the cross that was the victory that secured our forever. It's not a magical thing, communion, but it is a mystical thing there is something deeply significant and meaningful to this because communion is a picture of our need for constant spiritual renewal, our need to receive what Jesus has done on our behalf. Communion is an outward expression of that renewal. It's a chance for us to, as as Jesus said, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood because anyone who eats this flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life. It's a powerful picture for us of experiencing Jesus as the bread of life. How true and meaningful and and satisfying and lasting life is only found when we fill our lives with him and see him as the one who satisfies our needs, sustains our lives and secures our future. It's a picture of the body and the blood of Jesus that were broken and shed for us. That's why when the Apostle Paul talks about communion in the New Testament, he says these words in 1 Corinthians. 
says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the same way he took the cup of the new covenant between God and people, an agreement confirmed with, with Jesus' blood. Do this in, in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Because Paul says, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Communion for us is a picture of Jesus as the bread of life. A picture of the one who fills us and makes us whole in the ways we desperately want to know. How lucky we are to be known and loved by a God who would do this for us.